Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope all the listeners out there, I hope they're doing fantastic as well. And it's always a great episode when we have old friends coming on who are bringing these stories to us and really loving the way that this one played out. I don't really love the fact that it's a tragic story, but to talk about these things and to really dig into them, I think is super important. But Tim, what's super important to me right now is how you are. <laughs> I am doing great. Thanks a lot for asking. Yeah, this is a, uh, a really interesting topic today, a really interesting conversation about a fellow named Eugene Izzy, who died on December 7th, 1996 in Chicago, Illinois. He was a writer, and his death was ruled a suicide, but we're going to go over it in depth with our friend Christy Arnhart, who put together this research for us. So big thanks to Christy, and I think you're really going to enjoy this uh, conversation. And if you're not familiar with Eugene Izzy, and you'd like the style of these pulpish, true crime, like hard-boiled detective novels... You should give him a give him a look. Google Eugene Izzy books and check out some of his books. I mean, his death was really mysterious and his life was very tragic. He made something of himself by becoming this prolific writer. So by enjoying his work after he's died, just keeps his name out there. I had never heard of him before, so I've decided to go down the rabbit hole and start reading his books because I mean, having such a fascinating person creating I feel like needs to be taken advantage of. And if you love Missing, you can now subscribe to Missing Premium where you'll get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show. And that's all in the bundle with one of our other podcasts, Crawl Space, and another podcast from Crawl Space Media called Dark Valley. So make sure to check out that bundle. You can go to missing.supportingcast.fm if you're not an Apple user. But if you're an Apple user, you can subscribe right there on Apple Podcasts. And Tim, we know that if anybody wants to purchase Eugene Izzy's books, they should go to their local bookstore or they should try to find it online. But Tim, if they're trying to find us online, where would they go? Well, listeners can follow us at Missing CSM on social media. And make sure to give Crime Christy a follow as well. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We'll be right back. We're going to break for commercial here, and we'll be right back with Christy Arnhart. Welcome back to Missing Christy Arnhart. How are you today? I'm great. How are you guys doing? We're doing great as well because uh, the past few days, it's been all about Christy here at the uh, Crawl Space Media Studios. <laughs> you bring in these stories to us that are really, really fascinating, and today is no different. This story, while very, very intriguing and fascinating, also has this really sad element of what it's like to be the product of generations of abuse. So once we get into it, I want to go over that part because that really kind of stood out to me more than I expected. But anywho, how are you today? Just fine. It's a lovely day here in Arkansas. I'm good. It's always a lovely day in Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into this mystery. This is the case of Eugene Izzy, whose nickname was Guy, and he also had a pen name that he wrote by known as Nick Gaetano. And this is really a, a tragic case. Eugene was found dead 
1996, on December 7th, in Chicago, Illinois. And this is a uh, sort of a very mysterious um, part of his life uh, being his death. And the death was ruled a suicide. However, as we get into his story, a lot of these details leading up to his death, how his body was found, is really going to question that whole official death ruling. Again, really tragic because of the history of abuse. Eugene was only 43 years old at the time of his death. So that would make him 70 years old today. And from an Esquire magazine article, he was described as a powerfully built man, six feet tall, 200 pounds, thick, dark hair, prominent nose, piercing eyes, and an intensity that electrified some people and intimidated others. And that's not just a description that we use to quote him just so you can get a sense of what this man looked like. Again, thinking about how he died, that kind of plays in as well. Right. And uh, this case was researched by Christy Arnhart. So thank you very much for the research, Christy. And uh, we're happy to uh, go through this with you here. Oh, yes, it was a pleasure. Well, just to give you some background on Eugene, he was born March 23rd of 1953 in Hegwish. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, One of Chicago's suburbs It's on the southeast side. Now, according to Wikipedia, which is where I usually like to take a lot of this information is place locations. It is pronounced Hegwish by the locals. It's one of 77 community areas in Chicago, Illinois. It's located, like I said, on the far south side, and the community was actually named for the president of U.S. Rolling Stock Company, Adolf Hegwish. (laughs) I keep wanting to pronounce the name wrong. He established this community because he wanted to have an ideal working man's community. He laid the town out along a railroad line in 1883, and it grew from there. A lot of steel work in the area, a lot of factory work. So that was something that kept it going. This particular area, when Guy, when uh, Eugene was born, it had about 7,142 people in it. It wasn't a huge community. It was just attached to a lot larger ones. But yeah, 20th century came in, you got a ton of steel mills opening up in the place, brought in lots of workers until the 1970s. And then employment in the steel industry began to trend downward and it hurt all of these steel mills that relied on it. In 1980, Wisconsin Steel closed its South Deering Mill, leading to high unemployment in the area. Now, Eugene's area wasn't hit as hard as some of the others, but you could really see see the devastation that it brought with it. It brought a lot of poverty to the area, a lot of crime. It was just a middle-class working area. You take that away and people just didn't have anything to work with there. Today, it's actually more stable. You've got a lot of firemen and police officers that work there. So it's kind of went through a renaissance. Thank goodness. He lived his whole life in Chicago and in this community. That's where all of his novels are set, which, by the way, he writes crime noir novels. Uh, Some of his novels were likened to, um, oh, I can't remember his name, but it's the show Justified. Elmore? Elmore Leonard? Yes. Yeah, it seems very very Elmore Leonard quality. Oh, it is. It is. It always happens in those communities. They're really kind of neat to look at. I've looked at a couple of them. Very cool. And so he wrote several novels using the Hegwish community as the backdrop for his novels, too, which I think is is always interesting to write something you know about. And so he grew up in a two-story bungalow on Brainerd and Burnham Aves. 
but his home life was less than ideal, and his father and his mother were both abusive toward him. Yeah, and it just makes you wonder. This is when I started thinking about that whole generations of abuse and how one community can be exclusively reliant on one source of income or one way of lifestyle, right? So the steel industry was in there. You take that away and all of a sudden it becomes desperation. So I was actually curious if like parents of parents of parents were also as abusive, but it continued. Uh, it wasn't just his father. When you hear abusive parents, you typically think father, but his his mom was abusive to, to him as well. And as we speak about Eugene's father, Eugene Sr., he had a reputation And I'm wondering if this came from how the community kind of fell apart after the steel mills shut down. He had a reputation as a small-time mafioso. He got his start as a knee-cracker for mob loan sharks, which I thought only existed in the movies. And between 1967 and 1978, he was convicted four times on charges ranging from interstate racketeering to drug trafficking, spent most of those years in jail. So not a very good home situation for a guy. No, it wasn't a good situation. And when his father wasn't in jail, the only thing he did was sit at home and unfortunately beat his wife and beat Eugene too. In a 1994 article in Chicago Reader, his older sister Fabian Fisher says that her brother was a human punching bag, a very battered child physically and emotionally. My grandmother hated him because he looked like my father and we lived with her when our dad was in jail. She'd use any excuse to beat Guy up or call him the most disgusting names. When that wasn't happening, his mother, who was an alcoholic, would beat him too. So he just really had no reprieve in his household at all. Jeez. Yeah. The only way that he found to escape that violence was through reading and writing. And that's what he started doing. He actually won an essay contest in the third grade. And it just, it grew from there. And he just cultivated this persona. He cultivated these books. It was incredible. Yeah, that's a great way to turn uh, something really negative in your life into a positive. Sort of throw yourself into that. I don't know how many people could do that like Eugene did. But uh, he did. And that that was pretty impressive. And he attended St. Columba's Grammar School on the corner of 134th Street and Avenue O. And he attended only two years at Washington High School before he dropped out at age 16. And the next year he joined the army. But instead of going to Vietnam, he was sent to Germany where he got his high school equivalency diploma and started to really write on his army issued typewriter. And he wrote crime fiction akin to cheap dime store novels about the criminal underworld. And Tim, you had said earlier that it's always good when somebody writes about what they know. So he set all of his stories in and around the area that he grew up. But I think like tragically, he also knew about violence and his books had a lot of violence in them. And he knew about violence through his family. So in a way, like, yeah, it's it's great that he's able to do this, this writing. It's probably it probably saved his life up until up until uh, the point where he actually did die. Unfortunately, like a lot of what he knew was like these violent behaviors that were all around him. It's very true. And uh, unfortunately, it started in his adulthood as well. When he was discharged in the Army in 1972 as a sergeant, he went back home to Hegwish, where he started working in the steel mills. Now, due to the instability in the steel mills, At that time, he worked off and on. He didn't have anything stable to look at. So he started drinking heavily and using drugs and it got him into trouble with the law. He started living just like the people that he wrote about. Now, luckily, 
while he was going through all of this, he did keep up his writing, and that's what helped pull him out of it and off the streets. He wrote novels, he wrote articles for local papers, and he was always, anything that he did, tried to draw attention to the plight of the people in the area that he lived in, the poverty, the crime, all of that. And in the mid-70s, he got married. He actually met a woman named Teresa and married her, and they had two sons together. Gino was born in 1977 and Nick in 1981. But on August 15, 1981, Teresa left him and took their sons, and Eugene became very drunk and spent all of their money at the bar, which he usually did. And then he punched Teresa in the stomach when she confronted him about it. And it's really remarkable that he was able to do any writing. That's just my opinion with all of the things that that are like swirling in his head. He was even evicted from his apartment. He lived in the back room of a barbershop that he was helping out at. And this is the first time that he had considered suicide. And according to The Atlantic, there's an interesting stat here about writers. Authors were also almost twice as likely to commit suicide as the general population. So I guess we can say having this creativity, having this openness, a lot of emotions and just kind of being raw about your feelings come with a price. I really do feel that creativity comes at a price. You see so many talented people nowadays who end up having so many issues, whether it's their personal life or emotionally, it does come at a price. Now, with his history of abuse, it was almost guaranteed that he would either become an abuser or continue to be abused. From the imprint, it says the study published in the journal Child Maltreatment followed more than 5,000 children with documented cases of child abuse and neglect. After 16 years of following the participants, the researchers gathered intimate partner violence data from arrest records and restraining orders. It's the first study of its size and scope to utilize administrative data rather than rely on participants' recall of abuse. Now, the study found that child abuse and neglect had a direct effect on adult intimate partner violence perpetration for men. In other words, boys who were abused or neglected are more likely to become abusive with their partners in adulthood as compared to those who hadn't been. Yeah, You know, hearing something like that really makes it stand out those who went through abuse and do not abuse. And we never bring that up. You know, we bring up the stats about people who have a history of being abused and they go on to become abusers themselves. But... I wonder, I wonder what the other end of that research would look like, ones who come out not being abusers and not being abused. And later that year in November, Teresa forgave Eugene and took him back. He swore to never drink again or to hit her again, and he apparently never did. And despite the hard life that he lived, he was very generous to the dispossessed. He helped shelters, basketball teams, battered women, and alcoholics, just to name a few. He would buy them food, clothes, and help them to further their lives in a positive way. Here's a quote from an anonymous friend of Eugene's. Quote, you could call Guy at 2 a.m. if you were having a problem. He could be secretive and needy, but very generous. I'll never forget that he was the first person to see me after my son was born. He held the kid so tight I was jealous. Worst thing you can do, he told me, is to mistreat a child. End quote. That is so tragic sounding. Yeah, fairly sad. It is. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. And 
He did write a lot, but nothing was actually published until he wrote The Take in 1987. And here's the tagline to it. Ex-cop, ex-con, Fabe Folletti takes on Latin cocaine kings, brutal mafiosi, and an unforgiving narc in this crime thriller set in the gritty streets of Chicago. Uh, the book was successful. It did well. The take was even made into a TV movie. He signed a contract with St. Martin's Press that gave him $20,000 for three more books. So all of these things, right? All of these circumstances that he lived through, the abuse, the drug use, the alcoholism, seems like he's finally coming out of it here. Well, and it seems like things just kept getting better for him. And right, I mean, he deserved it at this point in his life, right? Three years later, he signed with Bantam Books and wrote a lot of other novels. He was always writing. Now, this allowed his family to move out of Hegwish. He bought two houses in Park Forest. One was used as the family home, and the other one was an office on Wabash Avenue, and Guy would go to work and actually work out of it. During this time, he was nominated twice for the Edgar, the Mystery Writers of America's top award. His first big novel under Bantam come out. It was called Tribal Secrets. And unfortunately, it did horribly. They called it his worst book. That came out just as all of his deals were supposed to be hitting for, you know, the trips he would be taking to promote it, for the television series that would come of it. All of that fell through because the book sales were so bad. They stopped all of the promotions. They stopped all of the tour dates. And they didn't tell Guy anything until the book was ready to be released. Bantam made him so mad that he severed their relationship under the agreement, but he said that he would not publish another work under his name for three years to finish out his contract with them. So now you've got a man who writes constantly who won't be able to publish anything. So, you know, because he couldn't publish his work, the money didn't come flowing in like it did. He was forced to move back into Hegwish with his family, where he rented one place for the family and then rented another for his office. Well, that's a real shame that he couldn't write for three years, but could he create a pen name to continue writing under? Yes, that's where Nick Gaetano comes in. Oh, good. Okay. This is the one that he wrote under during that time. For whatever reason, though, during this, he started to get increasingly paranoid and distant. He started doing things like taking his name off the office mailbox downstairs. He had his phone number listed as unlisted. And it's weird because he was so paranoid and he didn't want to be seen, but he was constantly aggravating and poking all of these anger groups like skinheads and militias. He just couldn't seem to keep his mouth shut when in that regard. But in 1995, he signed a contract with Avon Books and was signed to write the novel A Matter of Honor, a novel of Chicago, which was to be a multi-viewpoint novel that would change the genre. And this would be the first book that allowed him to publish in his own name again. And he also moved from the office he was at to one on Michigan Ave. And he was very excited to see his name in print again and was looking forward to a Matter of Honor's release. Now, this is where things start to get weird. In November of 1996, claiming that he feared for his family's safety, he moved his wife, who was Teresa, and their two sons into a downtown hotel from their apartment on Printer's Row, where they had originally come back to. This one, you know, Printer's Row sounds really neat, too. It's a district with renovated print shops and binderies on the South Loop, is what they call it. 
He also started carrying a 38 caliber pistol with him at all times, which is something he had never done before. Sounds like he's really like immersing himself in the stories that he's writing now. I feel like they're starting to become some sort of like, I don't know. I feel like the separation is getting a little bit fuzzy in his in his thinking. He's writing about these militias. He's writing. He's he's poking the like skinhead groups and these hate groups. So it just kind of struck me like this was. The, the the reality was starting to kind of, I guess, bleed into his writing and vice versa. And he had actually told others that he had been researching with an Indiana militia group and they found out that he was a writer and they had begun to threaten his life. So is that the reason for the paranoia, the reason for carrying the gun? And apparently this was not the first time he was threatened. What he would do to learn how certain people behaved, he would insinuate himself with these groups and learn from them. And he was threatened and he was hated for this. One of these groups was said to be neo-Nazis. I mean, these are not like groups that you can casually go in and out of. And when you're bored, you don't go back, right? Like these are for life type groups. So one part is like deep research. And the other part in my thinking is things might be starting to get a little confused for him. Oh, I totally agree. I really do think it did. And I can't imagine you can't just slip in and out of groups like that. Without stirring the waters, you can't. And then on December 7th, 1996, at 11.30 a.m., a doctor glanced out his window while he was treating a patient in his office in an adjacent building at 30 North Michigan Ave. And he saw a man hanging from his 6 North Michigan Avenue office, and he called 911. I'm not trying to be funny about this, but I feel so bad for that doctor. Like, could you imagine... No. In the middle of a, an appointment with a patient? And what do you tell the patient? Do you try to keep it like on the down low or are you just like totally transparent with what's happening? I mean, a doctor's natural inclination is to help, right? So I imagine it would have been uh, very distressing for that doctor. And firemen arrived on scene first to room 1418 and the door had to be broken down because it was locked from the inside. And Eugene allowed no one to have a key to his office, not even the people who rented to him or worked in the building. He told them he was afraid someone would steal one of his manuscripts. So when they entered, they found Eugene hung by a hemp rope that had been wrapped around his neck four times and then tied with a slipknot. The other end was tied to a desk leg in a slipknot as well. He was hanging out the window by a distance of 8 to 10 feet, with his feet dangling just below the window of the room one story beneath his office. When his body was retrieved, rigor mortis had set in, so he, he'd been hanging there for a little while before it was noticed. What was found at the scene by detectives, we have the fully loaded thirty-eight revolver that was laying on the floor just west of the window. The desk that had been tied off had been moved by about a foot and a half, it is presumed to have been moved by the weight of Guy's body. There was no signs of a struggle. There was no signs of a break-in. Again, Guy was a large, fit man, so had somebody broken in to try to overpower him, there certainly would have been signs of a struggle. The additional layer of weirdness here is that he was wearing a bulletproof vest as well, and other items that were found in his trouser pockets and in the pockets of his blue winter overcoat were all geared towards protection. There were brass knuckles, a can of mace, three computer diskettes, a couple of threatening notes containing the words danger and beware, and the transcript of a phone call that 
had been left on his voicemail, which was supposedly from that militia in Indiana. So weird. And there were transcripts of other threatening phone calls, too. None of the threatening calls were reported to police, but Eugene made transcripts of them. And he also had almost $500 in cash in his pocket, and there was no indication of theft. Now, just to continue with all this weirdness, Chicago police technicians were able to trace the threatening message on Izzy's voicemail. That call had come not from Indiana, but from a payphone around the corner from his office. The more the detectives listened to the woman's kind of halting delivery, the more certain they became that she was reading from a script. They couldn't identify the woman, but they assumed that she had been paid by Izzy or was doing him a favor and reading from a script for the call. Very strange. So Mm -hmm. that's the phone call. That was one phone call that was threatening that was made from right around the corner from Eugene's office. Yeah. Yeah. The only one that they had other than the transcripts, which is weird in itself. I mean, I would question the legitimacy of those transcripts uh, at all. You know, at all. Were they real phone calls? Oh, definitely. I mean, he's a writer. You know, he's he's coming up with this stuff uh, anyway. So could he have actually just come up with those? And it couldn't be traced back like it could be today. So, yeah, definitely. Was the woman ever identified? Not that I found. Now, according to Esquire, in the days before his death, Izzy had played the message for anyone whose ear he could grab. At least half a dozen people had heard the halting female voice say that Izzy's infiltration of the Indiana militia had been discovered. He'd been tried by a kangaroo court and sentenced to die by a flaming rope is what she called it. So that's what she said during the threatening phone call? Yes. Can I get some clarification on what death by a flaming rope means? I don't really know what that reference means. I would almost think it could free somebody if they were hanging, if the rope then caught on fire, you know? So yeah, this is a very, uh, very confusing one. It is. There seems to be some poetic license there, doesn't there? You wouldn't think someone who was threatening you would take that. Well, the police traced another phone call. This was the last one that Izzy ever made, and it came from his office on Michigan Avenue late on the night of December 6th, which is the night before he was found dead. He spoke to one of his sons, saying that he'd forgotten the keys to his office, and asked whether the boy could bring them to the lobby of their hotel. Izzy met the boy in the lobby, hugged him, and said, no matter what happens, I want you to know that I love you. This is so confusing to me, because if he didn't give a copy of his keys to anyone, including the people that he was renting from. But he made the call from inside his office to his son to see if he could bring the keys. And his son brought keys? Yes. Supposedly the only set that he had, he had forgot them in their hotel room. But how did he get in the office to begin with? Unless he left it unlocked. But he wouldn't do that. I have a thought here um i think he probably had his key and was looking to recoup the other key um that was available um possibly knowing what was going to happen the next day and not wanting one of his sons to find him in that state Mm, yeah i hadn't thought about that well they ended up identifying him by the driver's license that they found in his pocket and police labeled the case a death investigation until his autopsy came back And what did the autopsy show? The autopsy showed that death was by asphyxiation. Now, even though he was hung, his neck wasn't broke, as you would expect in someone who had been hung. The Cook County Medical Examiner found bruising on his inner thighs, 
and that suggested to them that he had straddled the windowsill of his office before he jumped, presumably. But he was known to be scared of heights. So, you know, I guess he was gripping the windowsill before he got up the nerve, if that's how it happened. Now, friends and family argue that he wasn't depressed at this time, and he would not have killed himself. They said he feared for his life because of the militia threats, and that was it. Yeah, his marriage was happy. His sons, Gino and Nick, were all doing well in school. Only the year before, he'd signed a major contract with Avon Books for a sum his publisher wouldn't disclose, but one big enough to rule out financial problems as a motive for suicide. But that's the determination. And yeah, I I guess those uh, those marks on his thighs, that, that sounds like that would uh, be consistent. Um, and I guess his fear of heights wouldn't really come into play too much if he's planning to end his life. It seems plausible to me. I'm scared of heights, and I would have held onto that windowsill for everything I had. So it makes sense. And he was on depression medication, uh, Zoloft, that was prescribed by a psychiatrist. And of course, he didn't tell anybody because... Guy is a secretive person, and he didn't want anyone to know. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. So now we go back to those three diskettes that they found in his pocket. And I know some sources say that it was a disc or a single diskette, but I I think that there were three of them. I found enough reference to go with that. So late December of 1996, an FBI computer expert finally figured out his password for his computer and was able to open the files that were on those diskettes that were found in his pocket. They contained segments of a novel that was 800 pages long. No one, I mean, not even his publisher, knew that he was writing that. Details in the novel match his life, and the main character is a crime novelist. Now, one of the scenes in this book takes place when members of an Indiana paramilitary group discover the main character is a novelist and has infiltrated them. They break into his office at night while he's working. The main character's wearing a bulletproof vest and he's armed with mace, brass knuckles, and a 38 caliber pistol. The group overpowers him, hangs him from his 14th floor window by tying a rope to a desk leg with the rest around his neck. The difference here is the main character in the book pulls himself back into the building, overpowers his attackers, and lives. Well, I'm wondering if he actually did plan to kill himself, if this was an actual suicide attempt. Why is he taking the hardest way out if he's afraid of heights when he has a loaded 38? And I know that the main character in the in the book has this moment that's the same, but I don't like it's confusing to me. I don't see how that's an option for him if he's actually going to kill himself. Very true. But if you think about it, he was known to go to extremes when he researched his novels. You know, he'd infiltrate these groups. He'd live as a homeless person. Whatever it took for him to know he was getting that subject matter right, didn't matter what the subject was. So, Wow. So what you're saying is the way that Eugene was found um, that morning hung outside of his window was research or possibly research for his novels and or one of his novels and not an actual suicide attempt. Right. And then there's a lot of people who think that now his death was eventually ruled a suicide on January 15th, 1997. 
And today, everybody still debates it. I mean, there's no evidence of foul play found. There was no evidence of a struggle. In my research, I could find no suspects. I couldn't find any more details about the Indiana militia. And you would think if this was someone he had infiltrated and had been working with for a novel, that there would be something laying around. It's mentioned a lot. He mentioned it to a lot of people, but I can't really find any evidence of him. So one of the theories is that he was researching this for a novel. That's what we're talking about, that he was researching if it's possible to be hung by your neck outside of a building and and climb your way back in. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's one theory. Yeah, that's one theory. And he didn't care if he succeeded or not. Well, I would I would argue he probably um, tried to do exactly what the character in the book was doing, but uh, or had you know was supposed to do, but uh, he, Eugene was not able to uh, pull himself back up. Is is my uh, thinking that it was yeah. uh, more of yeah. an accidental suicide yeah. than anything? Yeah, yeah. So he had that in. He must have had that in his head. He's he's afraid of heights. I just really want to paint this picture. He's afraid of heights, but he's so committed to the realism of his work that he is willing, and he even said it to his son, no matter what happens, know that I love you. He's willing to hang himself by the neck outside of his office and passes out, loses strength, or however it played out, he wasn't able to recreate what he wanted to recreate from his book. That's incredible. That is so tragic. Well, and I can't imagine going to these extremes for a scene. I really can't. Right. I mean... I think some of this stuff is is problematic for him mentally, I I would have to say. Um, He seems very paranoid at this point. Um, And it also seems like he's going out of his way to, I guess, make it seem like he is getting the threatening phone calls or at least possibly paid someone to make one to him. Um, But these three diskettes and then the book that no one knew he was writing. How many pages? 800 pages long? Like that's... That's not a book that's going to get published. That's either like your first try and it's got to be cut down like considerably or, you know, more like what I'm thinking is like, uh, you know, there wasn't a great structure to this and it was a little bit uh, rambling. It had to have been because that that's like on tier with a Stephen King novel, you know, (laughs) not really with what he had been writing before. And there were odd things like in the weeks before his death he handed out presents and acted out of character like he was polite to people that he was usually rude or gruff to the detective said that it was almost like he was trying to make amends to people that he felt he hadn't been good to in life reinforcing the idea that you know he wasn't suicidal but no suicide note was ever found and why would somebody this secretive make such a public show of their death None of it makes sense to me. Yeah, I'm wondering if all this paranoia, maybe there was a little bit of paranoia that was real, but I'm wondering if all of this was done so that he could get the honest reaction of people when he would tell them that this militia is trying to kill him so that he could write an honest reaction when the character is going through the same thing. Well, that's a good thought. You know, experiencing everything as as most firsthand as he can. That is, that's a good thought. Oh, it's a, no, it isn't. It's a tragic thought, Chris. <laughs> well, it's a good Awful theory. thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, is he one of those artists who, um, like, 
puts himself through, like, let me just throw out an example, like Christian Bale, right? We know he's a really good actor who's lost, like, 100 pounds for a role in the past to the point where he's, like, actually, like, medically, uh, like, in danger, needs some help uh, gaining weight again, Um, you know? So is is it that kind of, like, irresponsible, you know, artsy um, move? Commitment. Yeah, commitment. Yeah, yeah. Like he was a meth writer? It said here I, this book was supposed to be – it was supposed to change the genre. So how is he – I mean, that right? He's, that's yeah. how he's changing the genre. After it's published and he's going to do the media circuit, he's going to say, I lived it. I made these things happen. I said I was part of a – like, I lived this thing. And that's how it was going to change the genre. But, it, yeah, I, I could see that. But it, isn't that weird that he throws himself, like – out the window when he's a private guy. Like even if he were able to pull himself back inside the window, there's a decent chance someone would have saw him and, and uh, police would have been called or something. Right. Well, we would hope. Yeah. Was I had this thought too. Was he commit? Was he taking his own life and doing it in the way that it was shown in the novel so that when the novel was found, it would come out and be an even bigger hit than it would have been to begin with. I don't think so because he didn't make any efforts to publish the novel. True. And I would also argue that it uh, needed some heavy, heavy, uh, heavy editing. editing. <laughs> oh, yes. So, yeah, I, I am in the camp that this was an accidental suicide based on research for his uh, upcoming book. But if you're going to research this, you are the author of your own story. You don't have to have your character be dangled out a window. So that you can, hey, how about you don't do that so you don't have to go research it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess Christian Bale didn't have to lose 100 pounds for that role (laughs) either, but he did. It's that commitment. Curious what your thoughts are on it being ruled a suicide and not an accident. Is there any benefit to it being called a suicide than it is as an accidental death? I would think that that would just work against him because if I'm not mistaken, insurance policies, none of that will pay out due to the manner of death. Accidental is one thing, but when you take your own life, it's another. So I don't see that he would have gained financially from anything they had set up. Oh, well, that's very disappointing. Um, especially when, I, I mean, I feel like it's a combination, truly, of, of both of those. I'm not so sure it was an intentional suicide. I don't think it was either. Yeah. I think his level of commitment got to him. Be careful out there, artists. Yes. Your life is worth more than your art. Well, Christy, thank you very much for bringing us this research today. It's um, a very interesting story and um, mystery. Um, I feel like we've got a better handle on it after going through it together. What do you guys think? Oh, definitely. He was incredible, and it's incredible to learn about him. What a great point. Yes, people should, and we'll put a link in to his books. I mean, Mm. the guy wrote a lot of books and people really should look into him. I had never heard of him before and I had never read any of his books but I'm going to make it a commitment now to check out a few of them in the near future. You'll love them. Oh, you have read them? I did one and it, I, it's good. It's one of those dime store noirs, you know? Yeah. Not necessarily something I like to read all the time but I was, I was very happy to read one of his. 